As you turn there, let me remind you uh, that the Bible, as I said, is um, one book or one story with one author and one main purpose. One book with one story and one author with one main purpose or subject. And so oftentimes when we come to God's word, we forget that. We forget that it is one book. We forget that it goes together. And, and oftentimes the way we read it, we kind of forget that. And so just kind of bringing that to our mind here, the book, the Bible is long and complicated, obviously. It was written over thousands of years. I mean, there's, there's a lot of detail there, but we need to remember it's one, one book. And the most exciting parts, like a lot of books, come at the end, right? And, and of course, when we read the end, we, we get excited about what God does. And in this book, the, the most pivotal, the most important part of this book that we have comes somewhat in the middle. It comes with the coming of Jesus Christ and his life, death, burial, and resurrection. The most important part of it, the climax ultimately of it, is right there. But when we consider why Jesus came, when we consider what he was dealing with when he got here, we have to go back to the beginning, right? Just think of our favorite verse, John 3.16. And just think of reading that verse in a culture or place, if you possibly can, where you have no context to where that verse comes from. And so just think of reading, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There is a lot of detail in that verse that most of us understand just by the fact that we've been in church our whole life. For God will... Go read that verse in the midst of India, for example, where they have 330 million gods, and the question becomes, which god are you talking about? Or go read that verse in some other culture or, uh, or context, and we don't know which god are you referring to. And, and read that verse where he says his son. Well, what does that mean, his son? Was he born? Who's his mom? And you've got a lot of details and questions that come up that we oftentimes take for granted because we've been around the Bible our whole life. But just for a moment, if we were to think about it, if we were to think about it, that verse, for God so loved the world, that carries a whole meaning behind it that has already gone before it, right? In the context of this one book, we know what that means. In the context of this one book, we know exactly what he's talking about. And so... A beginning without an ending is, is not a helpful book. You know, you need it to draw to some conclusion. But at the same time, an ending without a beginning is almost impossible, virtually impossible. So both of these are very important. So if we're going to tell the story of Jesus, then we must start with Genesis. If we're going to tell the story of Jesus, then we have to start with with Genesis, and we must understand this. And that was somewhat, if you can tell, maybe sometimes this is how I, how I preach or approach preaching. Like this past Sunday, I felt like it was important as we're talking about death. Well, where did that come from? And how is it that Jesus has conquered it? And if you understand that death comes from sin and rebellion, then in order to deal with death, you have to deal with sin. And we understand that by going back to the beginning, right? And so putting all of this together and understanding this as one book with one main story and one main plot that is all coming together for us, then we recognize how important the beginning in, uh, is. How, how important the beginning is. So it begins with a book that's literally translated the beginnings. That's what Genesis means. It means the beginnings. And so it begins there. And this is so important that we understand. Because when we come to Genesis... Genesis 1, the only thing presupposed for us is that God was there, right? The only thing that it, 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 it kind of presupposes was that in the beginning, God. And we've talked about that already. After that, it tells us how everything came about. It tells us how everything happened. And so when we understand that the scriptures are everything we need for life and salvation... And we understand that, that the, the scriptures teach us and show us why salvation was not only how it came to us, 
but also why we needed it, then we come to the book of Genesis and we can understand who we are better. By the way, Christianity in its essence, Christianity in its essence is knowing God and knowing man, right? It's, that's what it is. You want to know who God is and we know who we are. And so the more you know about God, the more we know about us. And, and, and so as you look at this and how do we know God, and God begins here from the beginning, and this tells us everything, uh, so much here about who God is and who we are. Genesis 1-1 is a passage we all know. Um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2 is a verse that's something there that's vitally important for us. So if we read it, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This verse is important because it's telling us a couple things. One, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and when he created them, they were without form and void. So, Chapter 1, verse 2, is telling us how the raw materials of creation came about, right? God created the heavens and the earth. And when he created them, they were, in the Greek, it's a funny, Greek has a, um, excuse me, in the Hebrew, it's a funny way, it's tohu wabohu. They were formless and void. And so it's rhyming words there. So when he created everything, it was chaos, in other words, I remember, um, and now I know we've got some Disney fans in here, but I remember watching, if y'all remember Disney's first major movie was Fantasia. Y'all remember this? And Fantasia is about creation of a world. And y'all remember you've got chaos ensuing and all the waters are raging, all this stuff, and this little magician, Mickey Mouse, comes up with a wand and he starts bringing order to it, right? Well... That's exactly really what happens in Genesis 1. God creates the raw materials of creation. All of it was there, and it was without form and void. So if you're thinking this way, God creates everything he needs for creation. And he has them all there with no form and with no structure whatsoever. Void, with no structure. That's how Genesis 1-2 lays it out. So really, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 tells us how everything was created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the, and the uh, earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Everything's created that's needed at this point. Does that make sense to everybody? Everything's there. The raw materials are there. Everything's there. And so what happens after that becomes very significant. Because we don't get until verse 3... By the way, y'all thought I was going to stop at verse 2 and just talk about it all night, didn't you? <laughs> We're going to verse 3 right now. Y'all ready for this? You get to verse 3 and it says, so everything's without form and void. Chaos is all around with creation. And God said. And God said. It's not until verse 3 that God speaks. Everything's created and made, right? It's all of there. God creates it all. And then in verse 3, it lets us know that God speaks. The chaos of the universe is now going to start taking shape. The chaos of the universe is now going to start taking shape. And this is significant. Because not, it's not just telling us something that happens here. It's speaking about something theologically to us. It's speaking about the importance of what happens when God speaks. Of what happens when God gives his word. And so out of this chaos that's created, God speaks. And as he begins to speak, this chaos begins to take shape. What's chaos begins to come into order, in other words. God's word, God's word is going to bring order to creation. God's word is going to bring peace to the chaos, if you will. And so the reason why this is important is because as the chaos of the universe begins to be shaped by God's word, it teaches us the importance of God's word, of how God's word is going to always bring peace. God's word is always going to bring beauty. God's word is always going to bring order into what is chaos. When God's word 
is there and it's evident. Peace and order and structure and beauty are taking place, are there. And the opposite takes place as well. When God's word departs, the opposite happens. Chaos ensues. When God's word departs, chaos takes over again. When you don't have God's word, then you don't have the grounding of the truth in God, and then chaos happens. And so you have chaos in Genesis 1-2 as everything's created, and then God begins to speak, and he begins to bring order to it. He begins to bring beauty to it. He begins to, to bring structure and peace into this process as he speaks. If you were to take God out of speaking, then the opposite happens, and chaos and order takes place. And what you're going to see, the reason why that's important is because when you get into the scriptures, that's exactly what you see happening. That's exactly what you see happening because when sin comes in and God's word is removed and what happens in Genesis 3, we'll get there in a couple years, but what happens in Genesis 3 is that Satan begins to question what? God's word. Did he really say? Did he truly say? Satan begins to question God's word and God's word when it's lost and is questioned, chaos and disorder comes back in. Chaos and disorder happens. Take, for example, take for example, if you could think forward a little bit to, to the plagues in Egypt. Now, what God's doing with the plagues is people are there. The Pharaoh will not let them go. And so God's going to do two things. One, he is going to demonstrate his power over the gods of Egypt. And everything that he begins to break down are things that the Egyptians worshipped. They worshipped the Nile. They worshipped their livestock. They worshipped the sun. And over and over again, the Lord is going to demonstrate his power over the gods of Egypt. In fact, he has complete power over them. But something else is happening. You start to see chaos ensuing. And so what happens there ultimately is when God's word is lost, he starts destroying the gods of Egypt and creation begins to unravel. As the Nile turns to blood and then, and then the frogs spring, spring up and then the gnats from them and the flies and you see what happens and then their livestock dies and then darkness comes in. And can you imagine the chaos when darkness comes in and there is no light? You see all of creation unraveling before Pharaoh. If you don't listen to my word, all of this is going to unravel before you, Pharaoh. When darkness happens in, in Exodus... It says that they couldn't even see their hand in front of their face. Could you imagine? You ever been there? It's disorienting. It's out of control, and chaos ensues. I remember when I was young, we went, used to do mission work in West Virginia. It's a foreign country. And we would go up there, and they had anybody from West Virginia, I won't ever say that again. I'm sorry. Talk to me after. I love West Virginia. It's one of my favorite places. Absolutely beautiful. And so you go up there, and we were, doing, we, we were doing this mission work, and there were these caverns there. And I remember we used to go into those caverns and kind of go down into the caves, you know. And you would go, and they would always get to that plot. They had, they had electricity running down there. And they would always get to that spot, and they would tell the story because you could see the effects of the Native Americans that used it and others that used the caves. And then it would stop. And you would have the lights, but they would get to this place where you wouldn't see any more use down there. It would keep going but you wouldn't see any carvings on the wall, it would be that spot where you go deep enough that light can't get in there anymore. And when you go that deep where light can't get in, they wouldn't go any farther. They wouldn't go any deeper into there because what happens when light is gone and there's complete and utter darkness is the fact that chaos ensues. You don't know which way to go. You don't know what direction you're looking. You don't know what's going on. That's what happens in Egypt. God says, if you don't obey my word, Chaos is going to ensue, and creation is starting to, to show that and unravel before them, and unravel before them. And then, of course, the last one, God in, in, in creation, he brings life through Adam, right? But in Egypt, death comes to the firstborn. And so, ultimately, you see this chaos ensuing. When God's word is removed, chaos will ensue. Now, by the way, do we have to use examples in here tonight about how this is working in our own society? Obviously, we can see this clearly when God's word is no longer the standard, right? Or at least respected, at least honored in some way, chaos ensues. And what is seemingly impossible for someone to believe, they believe it. 
And as I've said many times, it's like you're unhooking the earth from the sun, right? And when you unhook the earth from the sun, if we were to move this thing just one inch, either way, chaos would ensue. An order of nature would be over with. And it's the same way when you remove God's word from our society. But when God speaks, the word of God speaks, out of that chaos and disorder, he brings order. And that's every single time without exception. When God's word comes in, he brings order. He brings beauty. As Isaiah said, his word will not come back null and void. In other words, it brings order out of chaos every single time. It brings beauty out of what is un not beautiful. The same is true, by the way, for our lives. Sin brings chaos. Sin unravels families. Sin brings bondage and addictions and other things. Sin puts darkness in our hearts. It makes us long after the things that aren't light of God. Sin does this. When you are questioning, and at the very heart of what sin is, the very anatomy of sin is to question God's word and his authority. And when you do that, it puts us in chaos and it unravels our families. It brings bondage. But when the word comes in, when the word comes in, it redeems and turns around what sin destroys. When the word of God comes, now I, I don't want to get preaching too much on this, but John 1, 1 says what? In the beginning was what? The word, and the word was a person. The word was God, and he was with God. And without, God, without him, nothing was made that was made, right? So the word of God Y'all see how this works then. This is something you can preach. If you ever got a sermon, you can use this one. The word of God takes what is chaos and disorder and redeems it and brings order. Redeems it and brings order. So the word of God brings purpose, not chaos. The word of God unites rather than unravels. The word of God brings light in the midst of darkness. Remember what Jesus says in Revelation 21. Behold, I am making all things new. He's coming in and he's bringing purpose and he's bringing light and he's bringing, he's uniting and making everything that was wrong right. That's what he does. And you see that already here. You see that already in Genesis 1, 3. It was formless and it was void and God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be light. So out of the chaos... God speaks. Let there be light. And when he speaks, he begins to create beauty in order. So, what is he doing here? God, when he starts talking in Genesis 1, begins to build a house, if you will. He begins to build a house. In fact, this is the way the Bible starts describing, describing creation all the time. It talks about the foundations of the earth. He set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be moved, Psalm 104 says. He talks about the foundations. He talks about the curtains, which, by the way, is like the, he says, the heavens are like the sky and the heavens are like a curtain drawn out in Isaiah 40. And what he's meaning there is that tent curtain that you would put over as the roof of your house, if you will, or your tent. So it's like the curtain that comes over. So he describes it as a house, if you will, like the roof of it. The pillars that hold this thing up, hold the heavens up in Job 26. He talks about how these pillars are there and they, they hold the heavens in place. God, over and over again, the scriptures describe creation as a house. And God makes this house through his word and through his spirit. And so it's what you see in Genesis. That's what you see in Genesis 1. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the Word, and God spoke. So the Spirit is there, God's Word is there, and God the Father is there. Do y'all see again here now how the Trinity is involved in this? For John 1 tells us, without the Word, there was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so here you see, even in these first three verses, the Trinity at work, as we pointed out, God the Father creates with the Spirit and the Word, and they're there together. And so now we set up this whole chapter. And it'll be easy for me to read all of this, but let's just look at what he says here. He begins to lay out how this works. Verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. 
And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, if you've got your Bibles here, you may want to, if you mark them like I do, you put a little line there. The first three days have an importance. In the first three days, God is dividing things. Remember, chaos and God's going to bring order. And so he's going to form things or divide things, if you will. Day one, light is divided from darkness. He separates the light and the darkness. Day two, the waters above are separated from the waters below. And so he's separating the heavens and then the that waters that are below, right? So he's separating those three. Day three separates the waters that are on the earth from the land. So he's separating. He's forming this thing as he goes. It's the same way you would begin as a house, if you will. He's starting to put this thing together by forming it and fashioning it. You don't go in and the first thing you do as a house, you don't normally, some of you may, but you don't normally you know, pick out the furniture for your den before the foundation's laid, right? You have to build this thing and then get it set up and established and then you begin to fill it. And so you have the next three days. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its own kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruits in which their seed, each according to its kind. And God said that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the heavens and the expanse. He's going to keep going, reading all of this the next four days. So what you have ultimately is you have day one, light and dark are separated, divided, and formed. But then day four coincides with day one. The sun, moon, and stars will be created. So in day one, you have light and dark separated, starting to be formed. And now he's going to fill that space. So it's formed in the first three days. And then now it's going to start to be filled. So day one coincides with day four. A lot of people bring up this, by the way. And you may be asking... A lot of people come up and go, well, that just proves this is craziness. You know what I'm saying? That's obviously this is a problem because light is created day one and you don't have the sun until day four. Uh, Bible's wrong and we shouldn't believe it. Well, first of all, my first question is, do you think the God of the universe needs the sun to have light? In fact, when we read scripture, we recognize that's not true at all, right? God wraps himself in light in Psalm 104. He wraps himself. We sang that, by the way. How great is our God? He wraps himself in light, Psalm 104. And the light, there, even, even as you see that presence of God, he always comes to his people as a bright light, doesn't he? He always does this. This is who God is. He's wrapped in light. But let me remind you of Revelation 22.5. When we get to heaven and we're all gathered there, and God has made everything that was wrong right again, right, through Christ. And all the people are there. Sin has been ultimately and finally dealt with. Satan has been cast into the eternal fire. And all of those who would follow him are with him now. He has dealt with that. He's wiping away every tear. He's making everything that was wrong right. And what does he say in Revelation 22? And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or the sun, for the Lord will be there. The Lord will be there, and he will be the light. Ultimately, we recognize that the only, we oftentimes think that light can only come from the sun, if you will, but obviously the Lord God wraps himself in light. So don't let that throw you off in this process, because the Lord separates light and darkness, and then as he does this, he fills it. He fills it with the sun and the moon, and the stars. By the way, he tells us that those sun and moon and stars are ultimately for our, we'll get to this next week, but ultimately for us, to bring us 
warm us and to keep us healthy and make us right. We'll see how man and man and woman creating God's image are the pinnacle of God's creation and that all of this creation that he's making is for his glory and our good, our benefit. And so here he says, day one, light and darkness separated, sun, moon, and stars in day four. Day two, waters above, waters below Coincide with day, day five, the birds of the air are created and the fish in the sea are created. Those that stay in the waters above, those that stay in the waters below. So he, he separates the waters above and the waters below, and then he fills it in day five. Day three, the waters and the land are separated. And then he makes all of the land animals in day six, and he makes man. He fills it. And so in this aspect of learning and reading through Genesis 1, you can see how God brings order out of chaos through his word. He forms it and shapes it and makes it, and then he begins to fill it. He begins to fill it. And that's exactly, I think, what, Revel, uh, excuse me, what Genesis 1 is teaching us. It's what it's showing us. It's showing us how God created everything. He made it all. He made it formless and void, and then he begins to speak and bring order to it, just like he always does when he, he speaks. He brings order out of what's chaos. He, he brings order to it, and then as he brings order to it, he begins to fill it all for his own glory. That's what happens in Genesis 1. I believe, ultimately, as I said last week, that we're talking about 24-hour, six-days creation, right? I think mean, that's the easiest way to read this and make it clear. Well, six see that even, even more so. I'll address that in a minute. We, we can see how that works. But maybe you can also see how I said last week that this is very literary as well. Wouldn't this be easy for you to remember, easier for you to remember, and hopefully it is easier for you guys to remember. Now, we don't, we, our minds don't process that way. We're not an oral culture. We read things and it's written down. But if you are Moses, remember where this was written, if you're Moses, and you're marching from Egypt to the promised land, and you're in the wilderness, and the Lord is now, is now revealing this truth to you, and you are writing this down as you wrote down the first five books of the Bible, and you're writing this down, and as you are doing this, how much better will it be for those people of, the, of, of, of Israel as they're being told where they came from and why their God reigns and why he's more superior than all the other gods and why he's, more, why he's better than all of them, greater than all of them, because he's the one who created us and made us, wouldn't it teach us even more so here how he formed everything and then he filled everything? And it makes it easier for them to even understand who their God is and what he's done for them. So it's literally telling us, I think, how it happened, and it's also clearly and uh, literarily kind of showing us and helping us understand how that looked. There was chaos, God spoke, and he formed everything out of the chaos, and then he filled everything. Day one, two, three, day four, five, and six. Now, when he does this, when he finishes with creation, this now becomes his house that he has built. And by the way, that's exactly how it's referred to over and over. If you can, turn with me in your Bibles to, to Exodus chapter 20. I mentioned this a little bit last week, but I want to point it out now just to, just to be clear, I think, or clearer, as clear as I can be. In Exodus chapter 20, you have the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, you have, of course, and I'll go ahead and tip you off because we'll be there later, but he says, and God spoke, again, you've got to notice how many times in the scriptures it says, and God spoke, that means something, right? God is revealing himself to us. We wouldn't know this about him unless he told us, and so he wants us to know this. And here in the Ten Commandments, you have this society of Israelites that are being formed, called out of Egypt, and God wants to bring order to how they live, so he speaks to them and gives him his, their commandments, right? And so ultimately, what is he saying? God spoke all these words saying, verse 2 of chapter 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, not to confuse anything, the Lord says, I've already redeemed you. 
I've already redeemed you. I've already brought you out of slavery. He doesn't want them to think that they've got to keep these Ten Commandments in order to earn redemption. Right? Don't we, don't we all believe that it's not our works that save us, but God's grace, right? And faith that saves us, not works. That's exactly what he's doing here. I've already redeemed you, and since I've redeemed you, here's now how you should live as my people. And then he says, no other gods before me. Why? Because there are none. Go back to Genesis 1. He's the only God. In the beginning was God, and God created. So don't have any other gods before me because I'm the only one. The rest of the gods that Egypt worshipped and everywhere else are just figments of your imagination. I'm the one true God. No other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or as it, that is in the water under the earth. Do y'all see the three levels here? Like the house that he described in Genesis 1. You have the heavens above, you have the earth beneath, and you have the water under the earth. So you have the three levels of the house that we just saw that were formed in Genesis uh, day one, day two, day three, right? And so what he's saying is, you shall not, no other gods before me, and don't carve any image or anything of anything in all of creation. Because that's the height of foolishness. Why in the world would you worship something created and not the creator, right? Just ask yourself that question. Why does it make any sense to give your worship or your value or anything to what is created rather than the creator? The creator's the one who made you. So don't make any image trying to look like the creator. By the way, that's exactly what they were doing with the golden calf. The golden calf, the Israelites weren't just trying to subvert God. They were trying to make an image that looked like God in their mind. And that's all they could come up with. Maybe reverting back to Egypt or some other, but they were, they were said, we don't know him, we can't see him, let's make an image that looks like him. And that's why it was the height of foolishness. You can't do that. He's the creator. You can't create anything that's like him. And so you don't do it. But what he's saying here is he uses that form of that house, right? The heavens above, the earth below, the waters underneath. He uses that form to give this sense of don't make any carved image of anything of all creation. There's not anything in creation you should ever try or to do to give your worship to. Not anything. So nothing in all of creation should get your worship other than the one true and living God. That's it. And so he's using that threefold. And it's, it does this, by the way, over and over again. I, I mentioned last week Revelation 5 verse 3, remember? In Revelation 5, you have John who's in heaven and he sees the scroll sitting there at the throne. He knows this scroll has to be opened in order for salvation to take place. And he says, I look, and where does he look? In the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth. And nobody was worthy to open the scroll. He's saying, I looked in all of creation. I looked in all of creation and there was not any creature worthy of opening that scroll. And he began to weep. Y'all remember that? And then one of the elders walked up and tapped him on the shoulder and said, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah is here. Jesus, not a created being, but God himself has come and he's worthy. And so that idea throughout scripture of this, this three-part house, if you will, three-story house, gives us this idea from Genesis 1 of all of creation over and over again. And that's how it's described. Now, if we're looking at Genesis 1 again and just kind of walking through this and pointing out a few things, there are some reoccurring phrases that matter. Not only does it say, and God said, but see how many times after it says, and God said, what's the next thing it says? And it was so. And God said, and it was so. The only time that doesn't happen, I believe, don't quote me on this or, or record it, the only time it doesn't happen is there in verse 3, and God said, let there be light. But you know what it says there? And there was light. Now, if you see down, it says, and God said, let there be an expanse. He explains it, but then you get down in verse, verse 7, and it was so at the end of verse 7. And then that's the second day, day uh, 
3 here is longer. He gets there and God said, let the waters uh, and the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. He does the same thing down in verse 11. And it, God said, and it was so. He does the same thing in verse 14 to verse 15. And God said, and it was so. When God says it, it happens. There's nothing that can thwart or stop God's word. There's nothing that brings it into question. There's no mitigation. There's no questioning in it. There's no uh, conversation about how can we balance this out and maybe can we get a little bit less here. When God says something, it happens. Nothing can stop it from happening. Now that's important. Again, um, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is in, in Acts in the book of Acts, by the time you get through, you know, you begin, the church has begun. And we know that Acts is a history of Jesus Christ's works after he was ascended through his church, right? And so now it's the beginning of the church and it moves forward. But as you read Acts and it continues, there about verse uh, chapter 15, 16, really when you hit into 17, it starts to follow the apostle Paul, right? You start to follow what Paul is doing and you have Paul there. 17 at the area of Pegasus, and then you keep moving on through. He's with the Ephesians in chapter 20 and has this whole chapter of his last speech with the Ephesian elders. And then he goes and he keeps appealing to Agrippa and all up to the emperor all the way through, through the book of Acts. And at the end of Acts, what does it tell us? It tells us that Paul was in prison. What does it not tell us? You think it would tell us that how Paul died, right? Now, we know from testimony of history, Paul was most likely beheaded in Rome. But Acts doesn't tell us that. It doesn't bring that up. Because Acts is not a biography of the Apostle Paul, right? But what does it say? Paul is in prison in Rome, and the last verse says basically this. And the word of God went forth unthwarted and unhindered. The greatest minister we probably have ever seen or known since Jesus, the Apostle Paul, is in prison and about to get his head chopped off. And when Luke is writing this, he knows that Paul got his head chopped off. But he doesn't record that because that's not the point. The point is not Paul's life. It's the point is the word of God and the expansion of the gospel. And when you get to the book of Acts, the expansion of the gospel is not dependent upon Paul. Just like it's not dependent upon any one of us. It's dependent upon the word going forth. And when the word goes forth, it is unhindered and unthwarted. And you see that from the beginning. And God said, and it was so. You cannot argue against God's word. You cannot try to find some sort of mitigation. You can't take this to arbitration. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You can't try to work out a deal with God on this. When God speaks, it's so. Remember that as we read his word. Remember that as we look to it. God said and it was so. We see also the other phrases there. Day one, let there be light. There was light. But you keep going. And there was uh, evening and there was morning. The first day or the second day or the third day. You have that same phrase. There was evening and there was morning. Whether you... Whether you want to argue that, and y'all probably have mulled it over, whether you want to argue this is a 24-hour day, I would, again, go back to Exodus to prove I think this, and it's the simple reading of the text. What you have to admit is the days here in Genesis 1 look exactly like our days, right? There was evening, and then there was morning. There was evening, and then there was morning. However you want to look at it, they look exactly like our days look. And so here we see that. These days are there. They look like our days. We also see another phrase that happens over and over again. Each according to its own kind. Each according to its own kind. I believe ultimately that phrase over and over again is testifying to what? There's no great macro evolution. Because evolution teaches what? That one species jumps to another species that jumps to another species. But what is said here in Scripture is that everything is created according to its own kind. According to its own kind. So you stay within your own kind, ultimately. Humanity with humanity. Even within the plant world, even within the animal world, everything is created according to its own kind. And I think that phrase testifies to that. 
that there's no jumping of kinds. You can't cross up kinds, right? Each one is according to its own kind. The other phrase I just want to point out is God saw that it was good. They're starting in verse 9. You, you, you have it all the way back up in, in chapter 1. Uh, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. You go down in that verse, that little phrase starts hitting hard there in verse 9 and 10, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, and God saw that it was good. Verse 18, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, and God saw that it was good. In other words, when God, who is right and perfect, makes something, what he makes is what? Right and perfect. Good. It's good. So this is important to remember whenever we get to Genesis 3, when bad enters in, right? And why is it bad? Because it's against God's word. Because when God makes it, it is good. It is good. So ultimately, we see these things in this first chapter. We see how God speaks and creates order out of chaos. And what should this do for us? We see how God, who is perfect and holy, makes a creation that is good in every way. We see how... We see how he creates it according to its own kind to stay within its own species for his glory. It should make us, most of all, I believe, thankful for what God has made. And when we become thankful for what God has made, who do we praise for it? We praise him. God's good creation should cause us to want and desire to worship him all the more. It should cause us to want and desire to worship him. That's why it makes sense for us. Not because we, in and of itself, of course, Romans 1 tells us that creation operates this way. We see the majesty and power of God when we look at creation, don't we? We all do. We see something beautiful. We look at it and go, whoever made this, I don't care who you call on, somebody had to create this and whoever made it is glorious and powerful. And we know that to be God, right? So it causes us to do that. Now remember, the difference between general revelation and special revelation. Creation is general revelation. It testifies to that creator who's made it and it was good. Special revelation tells us about how salvation came to us through his word. And so when we look at a pretty mountain scene, we don't look at it and go, man, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that's glorious. We don't look at it and do that, right? It doesn't teach us that. It teaches that God is majestic and powerful and worthy of our praise. But we, as Christians, know what? That same God who created all that, who's majestic and powerful and worthy of our praise, also did not forget us in our sin, but sent his Son after us to redeem us and save us. So that worshiping of creation points us to the worship that we do of our Lord for his salvation. When we see creation, we should thank God. We should praise him. But I also say that, to, to even put a little emphasis on what I've already said, to go a step further. Not only should we thank God and praise Him, we should delight in His creation. We re should rejoice in His goodness. Alice and I talk all the time how thankful we are that God didn't make us like the cows, right? Y'all know what cows eat? Grass, all the time. Hey, tastes the same way. If we eat the same food two nights in a row, then we won't have it again for six months because we're tired of it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? So we love food. Just think of the fruits and berries that God made for us. That's his creation. Those are things we take for granted, but think of how he made all of these things for us to enjoy and delight in. The potato is the greatest thing ever made in the history of the world. Think of how many different ways you can use the potato only, only to be approached by the peanut, right? <laughs> God made that for us. And we delight in his creation. We delight in his goodness. I thank God tonight for bacon. What a night <laughs> to talk about it. We rejoice. Amen. Amen. These are things God made for us. He created for us and we delight in them. And it's right for us to thank him and praise him. That he didn't just say, hey, y'all need some sort of energy to sustain yourself. Eat grass. Be happy but he gave us so many different things to rejoice in. And that's just one example of it. 
We delight in his creation. Not just thankful for it, but enjoy it and delight in it in its proper way. Next, I want to say this to you. And I think all of us know this, but this, like so many things in our culture and our climate, has become political. But for us as Christians, when we read Genesis 1, it teaches us that we have every responsibility that we should have toward our creation. We should take care of it. Now, again, that becomes a political thing nowadays when they say what you have to do. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is we should understand that creation is to be used for God's glory and for our good, right? So, yeah, there's no problem with us cutting down a tree. But we don't cut down a tree just for no warrant. We cut it down to use it, right? We cut it down to it builds us a house. It keeps us warm. It does things for us. So God created those things to be used so that we can keep warm and that we can have a place and all of those things. We use creation. It is there for us. And we should never forget this. And we'll talk about it a little more. Creation is put in place for God's glory and for our good. So it is in place for us. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, the crown jewel of God's creation as people. And so we use his creation for his glory and our good. We take care of it. We take responsibility for it. We seek to leave it better than we found it. It's just a simple rule that my granddad taught me, and I'm sure yours did too. We seek to leave it better than we found it. And then finally, of course, when you read Genesis 1, it teaches us that we can trust God. We can trust God. And we can trust God with the greatest The greatest of of things, that's our life, because he gave it to us. But even more so, think of the powerful statement that we find in Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because Paul is going to talk about our salvation. And as he's talking about our salvation, he's going to point back to day one creation. Paul is saying that we have this ministry. By the way, when you read, again... You cannot read the New Testament really without understanding the old. It just doesn't make sense. So whenever God's glory is seen, you know, in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, I'm getting off track, but I'm going to do it here a little bit. Whenever God's glory, I've got like four minutes. Whenever God's glory is seen, you know, and we see the Lord in his glory, it says in verse 13, I think that's right. I can't, that's too small for me to see. 18, 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. You know what it's referring to when it says that? We look at God's glory. Who's God's glory? It's Jesus now. Jesus is the image of the invisible. He is the glory of God. And remember what happened when Moses saw God's glory? He had to put a veil over his face because he was glowing. Now we don't have to veil our face. We get to see Jesus and we glow with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't understand that reference until you understand what happened when Moses in Mount Sinai. And then you come down and Paul is going to say, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. We as believers have every reason to be optimistic. Why? Because God created the heavens and the earth. And that's who we follow. We don't lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul is saying, because God is our creator, because he has made us, because he's in control, I don't have to to do things to, to fool you into believing him. I don't have to use fancy words to get you sideways in the door, if you know what I mean. I just have to state the truth clearly. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sakes. Now catch verse 6. For God, who said, y'all get this? God who spoke, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He's referring back to day one. 
For God who spoke and said, said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You believe God can change your heart? Absolutely we do. Why? Because God spoke first into the chaos and the darkness and said, let there be light. And there was light. So he can speak into the chaos and darkness of your own heart and say, let there be light. And there's light. You see, God's creation and his power is tied directly to our own conversion. And what happened in your heart if you're a believer in Jesus Christ is God spoke and said, let there be light. And his light shine in you. What's that light? The light of the glory of the face of Jesus Christ. You are a believer today because God spoke into your darkness and said, let there be light. Let them see Jesus, the light of the glory of Christ. Let them see him. And I trust that that works. Why? One, I'm a living testimony. He spoke into my own dark life and brought light and order out of chaos. And I'm sure every one of us has that testimony in here. But not only is that testimony working, it's also the testimony of Scripture, Genesis 1. The Lord God said, let there be light, and there was light. And the one who has the power to do that has the power to speak it into your own life as well. That's the God we serve. Man, how great do you think it was for those Israelites who just spent 400 years in bondage of Egypt and then got called out through these nine plagues and they got called out, 10 of them, y'all, I was seeing if y'all were going to look at me funny, got called out through these 10 plagues and going to the promised land and maybe they're thinking, what is it? Where are we going? What's happening? And Moses starts saying, let me tell you about the God who's called you out. He's the same God who said, let there be light, and it was light. That had to be comforting as they're walking through the wilderness, right? In the same way for us, it has to be comforting as we go through every day knowing the God who spoke light into the darkness of this world has spoke light into our own hearts. That's who we're following. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. Help us, God. Not to negotiate terms, but to surrender our lives. Surrender our lives, Father, to your word and your truth. Create beauty out of chaos, Lord. Bring light out of darkness. Do that in our hearts and our lives. Do that in our church. And then let our church reflect the light of the glory, the face of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your power. Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. Thank you, Lord, that you still speak light into darkness. Do that even now amongst us. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you all Sunday. Expect it.